because I had skated academically most of the way through high school and college and, uh, and, you know, not really having to try very hard and always thinking that if you tried very hard, you weren't smart. Right. Mm -hmm. was, you know, so, which is again, this like older attitude of like thinking that you were either born smart or you're not, it was very much, you know, the nature versus nurture type thing, which, you know, yep. you know, there's so much more better information data on. And, um, <clears throat> When I thank God, the, uh, the Navy really kicked that out of me because I got to flight school. When I got to flight school. Uh, you can't just study for the test. Like they are trying to fail you out all the time. And they're trying to teach you things so that when you are falling out of the sky upside down and your aircraft is on fire, you can remember things and get, the, get it right. Welcome to the Paths Distilled. I'm your host, Kevin Harris. My co-host is Lauren Tashman. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. And today we're excited. We have Abe Kmark. He's the founder and CEO of True Made Foods. Thank you for joining us today, Abe. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks for having me. This is a real honor. I really appreciate it. For sure. And uh, as we were chatting before the episode started, I want everybody to know that I'm actually a, a <laughs> consumer. I love your stuff. Your products. That's great. Uh, that is wonderful. That's a, I love hearing that more than anything else. So that's the best thing. For sure. And if, so. uh, I encourage everyone to try it if they haven't already. Um, I'll, leave, uh, I'll leave it up to you to tell us some about, some about your products later on. But uh, could you kind of talk us, uh, tell us kind of where your story begins and kind of how you got involved in the business? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I was, uh, I guess my... <clears throat> story begins all kinds of places but um you know uh, varied background mostly grew up in the east coast but uh went to vanderbilt on a rotc scholarship um a navy rotc and uh, graduated um in 99 and i uh, was commissioned in the navy um, and went to flight school um <clears throat> and i became a navy helicopter pilot and so i was uh spent eight years in the navy um did uh, multiple deployments. Um, from my time stationed in Florida, I was probably at sea more than I was at home, uh, which was unfortunate because I, I loved living in Florida because that was uh, really kind of sparked my passion for grilling and barbecue. Like whenever we were home, like that's all I did was cook outside. Um, oh, yeah, so it's that, always beautiful. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, uh, what was... I actually ended up cooking fish so much too, because the fish was amazing, mm -hmm. like especially in Mayport. Um, but we, and it also like really kind of got me, I mean, I, I grew up cooking. Um, I grew up as uh, with two working parents um, and my dad was almost never around uh, for various reasons, uh, not always good. Um, and uh, so, you know, a lot, our, me and my siblings, we all each ended up becoming very self-reliant um, because our parents were very hands-off um, parents that way. And uh, so we all ended up having learning how to cook on our own. And we also came from very, because being, uh, came from a very culinary focused family. My mom was Sicilian and like cooking was just something we did. They didn't own, my parents didn't own a microwave until I went off to college. Like I don't think they bought one. Wow. Um, and uh, <clears throat> you know, pasta sauce in a jar was anathema in our household. You know, you just, there's just certain things we didn't do. 
Um, sure. and, Your mom and my mom would get along, see. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that kind of, that developed like certain building blocks of food for me, which kind of led to True Made Foods um, and um, kind of developed more when I was in the military and on my own and cooking and starting to discover new cuisines um, and incorporating different types of cooking techniques. Um, I can say my my kind of my ethnic background and my, my culinary background is really kind of like Southern Italian and Southern Virginian because uh, um, you know, my, my dad's only a small part Southern Virginian, um, his grandmother, my great grandmother, but she had an outsized influence on the cooking in the family. Um, and uh, she was most famous for being a really famous cook and was known for hosting parties in the DC area with uh, her, <clears throat> with her culinary ability, even though she only had a third grade education, um, you know, and, so, you know, I, I kind of grew up with this background, uh, but we also grew up with this background of like using really fresh natural ingredients and using all vegetables and fruits. Um, like my great grandmother's Virginian recipes, like she used lots of butter and pork fat, but no, no sugar. sugar. Like they're the only sugar in any of our family cookbook recipes are in desserts. And now you look at Southern cooking and it's almost all sugar in everything. Like every recipe has sugar in it. It's ridiculous. Um, and same with Italian food, like the um, my mom always said, basically, what she taught me was that <clears throat> early on, it's only uh, lazy Italians use sugar, right? It, it was a shortcut. It's something people developed after they came to the U.S. post World War II kind of thing. Uh, when think food got industrialized um, as a way to make the, sugar, the food taste better faster without doing the real work in cooking. And uh, the way we learned to cook was like use apples to make your pork taste better, you know, if you want to make it sweet, and you, you use uh, carrots to make the uh, pasta sauce sweet, right, to cut the acid and tomato. And so that's kind of like the basis. And then, you know, that developed for me more as in the Navy and deploying. And, you know, I got to go to South America for counter narcotics operations and then the Gulf for the Iraq war. And, uh, you know, got to travel and eat at all these different places. And then stopped in Europe um, a bunch of times. Um, and then, so, one of the things I wanted to do, and one of the reasons I joined the Navy is because I wanted to just kind of, I just wanted to get out and do things. Like I just never wanted to have a desk job. Um, my dad was a lawyer and uh, we never saw him um, around. <clears throat> he was never home, he was, he was never home and he was never happy, like either. Like, uh, like he just was not an involved father and not happy person like ever when we were kids. And that just turned me off to doing anything at all that looked like that. And so I was completely set on joining the Navy and getting the hell out, you know, kind of thing, doing anything that was not, uh, look, that didn't look like a lawyer job, right? And so, and that probably also led me to entrepreneurship too, right? It kind of set the, the base. I didn't know it at the time. Because um, at the time, I would have thought entrepreneurship was way too much like a business job, and I would have wanted that, right? <laughs> which it is in some ways. Um, but uh, yeah, so you know, became an aviator, and I you know wanted to. I joined the Navy because I wanted to deploy and get out. And uh, I joined, you know, kind of just pre, you know, because I got commissioned in '99, so I pre 9/11. Um, when at the time, you know, only the uh, really only Navy and Marine Corps went out and did things, you know, in the 90s, like because uh, the Navy and Marine Corps basically deploy all the time, constantly, mm -hmm. um, or Navy especially are always at sea. And uh, the Army up until that point really had only, was still kind of like sitting around waiting for Soviets to invade, it wasn't really ready for 
this. And so I, the, the idea then was like, if you really want to get out and see something or do something, you got to join the Navy. So that's what I did. Um, and then of course, 9-11 happened and the Iraq war happened. And the army did everything. Uh, so a different swap. But at least I did deploy a lot. We were in the Gulf for the um, Iraq, beginning of the Iraq war. Um, and I got to, you know, see a lot of different things and go to a lot of different countries. And one of the great parts is for my shore duty when I was, um, after you do a sea tour where you deploy all the time, uh, you do a shore duty in the Navy where they, it's kind of like they want you to um, experience like kind of a more of an officer development side. So usually you go to like a major command or the Pentagon or something in DC. Um, and I went to US European command because I really wanted to, again, stay overseas and I wanted to keep going overseas. Um, and so I lived in England uh, for four years and got to uh, travel a lot for work and for fun. Um, my, we had just gotten married um, when we moved over there. My wife, my wife was Navy two and she had just gotten out, and so we, so she was able to come over and she did her grad degree um, full time while we were there. And um, I was lucky. It was actually this is a really big turning point in my life here because we. Uh, one, we got to experience all the different culinary techniques and stuff like that, you know, different cooking, um, traveling around. And um, we got to, uh, uh, at the same time, too, I was able to get my um, graduate degree. I went to London Business School part-time, um, did the executive program there. Um, so that was, that was really lucky that I was able to do that. And um, so especially to go to such a, like a, a great program like, like LBS. Um, so we, we lived in Cambridge, had a great time there and, you know, traveled back and forth to London. Uh, and uh, while we were there too, and this brings up the picture, is that uh, we had our first kid. Um, I had my, my oldest son, um, Matteo, and uh, he's the first of four. Um, but this was like kind of a, a major change point for us. Um, one, because it kind of like uh, I made the decision to get out of the Navy at the time, you know, to try to pursue business. Um, and it was just kind of really flush life, life point. I mean, up until that point, like, so my first one was born when I was 30. So like my entire twenties had been in the military and I had known nothing else. Um, you get the same paycheck every two weeks. Um, and then, you know, I got this business degree and it kind of opened my eyes up to all these different other possibilities of things that I could do. And I looked at my, as an officer in the Navy, especially, you're, if you want to advance, your uh, career path is pretty set in stone. Like there's like you, hurdles you just have to jump. You got to go do this. You got to do this next. You got to do this next. You got to get this qualification. And uh, at the time, it just was not attractive to me to do that. Um, like I really just wanted to uh, get out and just do different things and experience different things. That's always been a big piece of me when I was younger that up through my 30s uh, and so uh, we decided that I should get out um, we decided you know we just paid for these expensive grad degrees we should put them to use um, and at the time this was like we did our grad we were stationed there between 2004 and 2008 and or 2000 the end of 2007 really and so at the time like 2004 2005 six like we're, I was seeing, especially at business school, I was seeing all these people making, getting out, making all this money. And London was just like the epicenter of this amazing economic boom. And <clears throat> so it looked like, you know, the sky was the limit. I just got this great MBA, you know, and they build you up to, to make you think that like, you're the best in the world. And you're, you know, you're, you're, people are going to be throwing money at you and they're going to want you so badly. And, uh, 
number one, that's not really the case. Like even at the top business schools, you just got to realize like, you know, uh, London Business School graduates like 400 people a year. Um, and that's a lot of people, you know, at the end of the day competing for a few top end jobs. And, you know, Harvard graduates a thousand people, Wharton graduates a thousand people every year. You know, you're not, it's not that, I mean, that's pretty elite from when you look at the world population, but it's really, you know, it's still a lot of people competing for the same consultancy jobs and things like that, um, <clears throat> which really aren't great jobs at the end of the day either. But, uh, you know, it's something that everybody wants to do when you're coming out of business school. Uh, and on top of that, um, the financial crisis started to happen right as i got out um my, like literally the last day of my my last day in the navy was uh december 31st 2007. so <clears throat> it was already starting to throttle up um 2008 it really got bad um and i was just i did not have the tools to deal with this um, plus um we had our first son he was born in 20, 2007 in february and then we got pregnant uh, the beginning of 2008 with our second son so and we had school loans from the grad degrees um and we didn't have a lot of savings because we had been paying part of our grad degrees out of our savings and you know we've been mm -hmm. in the military it's not like we were saving a ton you know we're getting paid that much um <clears throat> and so you know it's just like this perfect storm of you know a perfect crap storm i guess like everything hitting us all at once and we were living in london where it was like two to one to the dollar and our savings were in dollars and the pound was like two to one at the time in the beginning of 2008. So it was just like awful, like everything wow. was the worst. Um, so we were trying to make a buy off of some savings off of, uh, we managed to get some consulting work. Um, my granddad was, his health was failing and he started to give some of his money away. So he gave us like $9,000, you know, and that helped um, significantly at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, not a huge amount, but like it's, you know, it was a huge amount for that. Like paid the rent for two months. Um, and we were, <clears throat> so, you know, if, they, if it wasn't for all of that, like, uh, you know, but it was incredibly difficult. Um, and, you know, we just, you just go from this point of optimism to this complete point of pessimism of like really worrying. Um, and it was really difficult for us too, because we, and we initially, when we moved to London from Cambridge, where we had been living when we were, when I was stationed in the military, like we, you know, kind of went along with our regular spending patterns. You know, we joined an expensive gym. We, you know, were buying food. We were eating out and like thinking, oh yeah, maybe like we'll have one month of like no salary or something like that. And then not realizing that this could get really bad. Um, and I think, you know, part of that mentality, there's a, there's a key point, I think that, and I'm not really a millennial, I'm too young, um, but this shares, uh, I mean, I'm too old, sorry, too old, I'm, I'm 1977. Um, but I, I have, I'm close, I'm in that gap, like kind of between Gen X and millennials. And um, I think what I shared with the millennial generation was this like um, baby boomer optimism, because my parents were baby boomers, they just had me young. And this baby boomer optimism that they build up for us, right? And especially if you were white, right? If you're white and like came mm -hmm. from, you know, middle, upper middle class, middle class background, you know, cause they just had it amazing ride. Right. And they just built it up. And I remember growing up, like my parents talking about like my grandparents who were mostly immigrants and went through the depression and world war II, and like how they would kind of joke about their attitudes. Cause like my grandparents' attitude was like, 
you know, find a career, get a solid job. Government is government jobs are great. You want something, you know, you know, that holds on and gives you benefits and a pension. And, you know, you never know what could happen. Like this is very like scared and like depression era type attitude and an immigrant attitude, you know, very much an immigrant attitude. And my parents would like poo poo that. And they were like, Oh, liberal arts degree. doesn't matter what you major in. Da, 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 you know, get like, and, um, Looking back, I mean, it was ridiculous. Like, they were like, oh, you don't need to take, like, thank God for the Navy. The Navy forced me to take math and physics and stuff like that in college. Otherwise, I, I literally, I tested out of it. I wouldn't have taken a single math course all through college if it wasn't for the Navy. And, uh, you know, Navy made me take physics with calculus and the Navy made me take uh, computer programming, which um, I probably should have done a lot more of. But like, you know, these are the things, you know, that, you know, baby boomer parents are like, oh, you know, easy liberal arts degree, you'll, you'll be set for life, right? It doesn't really matter. And um, this is what kind of came crashing down on me in like 2008 is like this reality that, you know, no, it's like, you, you got to hustle. Like you really got to turn it around. Um, and actually then for that point, like, thank God I had had the Navy because the Navy had like, um, even though I'd had like a little bit of this attitude that, you know, okay, things were always going to be all right, probably always going to have a good job, things like that. Um, as the world came crashing down around me and realizing that like, no, I'm going to have to make it on my own and figure this out and everything. Um, and think of the, the Navy had instilled this like insane amount of grit and, um, push through for me, um, that, um, had knocked out whatever, um, other bad stuff. I think having baby boomer parents, like, you know, raising you, um, I'm really, my parents are great people, but like, you know, it's, <laughs> so I want to paint a terrible picture of them, but like, they, you know, I had a very good childhood. I'm not going to complain about it too much, but these are, you know, just obviously not everything. You know, it's, it, one way or the other is gray area and this is some of the gray area. And I think um, one of the generational things that we experienced and one of the things that people complain about millennials is this like, boomer attitude that you know everything's going to be great and you don't really need to worry everything should be fine and uh um, i had that actually like because i had skated academically most of the way through high school and college and um uh, and you know not really having to try very hard and always thinking that if you tried very hard you weren't smart right mm -hmm. was, you know so which is again this like older attitude of like thinking that you're either born smart or you're not. It was very much, you know, the nature versus nurture type thing, which, you know, yeah. you know, there's so much more better information and data on. And um, <clears throat> when I think of the, uh, the Navy really kicked that out of me because I got to flight school. When I got to flight school. Uh, you can't just study for the test. Like they are trying to fail you out all the time and they're trying to teach you things so that when you are falling out of the sky upside down and your aircraft is on fire you can remember things and get the, get it right so there's no more like in college you can get by you know studying for the test cramming the night before you know for flight school you have to really know stuff and I like got this close at one point in flight school of failing out and like um, I had to like seriously like just turn my entire attitude around and, like how hard I needed to work. And, you know, I, I feel like I had to teach myself how to study. I had to teach myself how to study a whole different way where you learn this stuff inside and out. Like, and, and, and that kind of, I think really saved that training from flight school really saved my butt from in the recession. Cause I was able to kind of, that kind of skill set is something where if you can fall back on, you can find anything and quickly become an expert in it fast and know it better than the people, you know, who are doing it. Um, because we, we learned how to tear it apart. 
I'm curious. I don't want to slow your momentum, but does uh, when you're in this situation back in 08, have you already started? That was your goal to start a business at this point, or is it something that came later? It, you know, I I had dreams of being an entrepreneur back then too, and um, I think in a way, but. It, there was always this conflict where like, and I think a lot of like uh, late stage, and this is a lifestyle thing. There were like a lot of late lifestyle, like um, not lifestyle entrepreneurs, but like late stage entrepreneurs have this um, conflict where, you know, you, you want to build something amazing and great. Everyone, there's, you know, there's lifestyle entrepreneurship and there's like high scale, scalability entrepreneurship where you're, you know, you're where if you're doing the latter, if you're doing a business that's, that can scale, you know, significantly, you need to be able to lose money for a, a significant amount of time. Mm -hmm. um, and that means either having a significant amount of investment or, you know, usually going without a salary or taking major, you know, cuts in lifestyle. And when you have kids, like all of a sudden that equation changes, right? Um, and it's, uh, so when we had, when you have kids and you have, um, school loans too, like that equation really changes and your cost of living is extremely high because you're living in these urban areas. It's, these equations change significantly. And I think when people talk about entrepreneurship in America, quick sidetrack, like this is um, the biggest problem that we are seeing today. And if you actually think, despite all the hype, there's actually less entrepreneurship and less people starting more businesses now than there ever have been before. And the real numbers about it is less businesses are being started. And I think you know, it's because it's way too hard from a cost. People don't look at it like it's much easier to start a business from like, you know, you can outsource everything, Amazon Web Services, or, you know, you can set up a website on, on uh, Squarespace or, you know, WordPress, super easy. Um, <clears throat> set up a business on Amazon. You know, all these things are really easy now. What's hard is taking that extra risk. Like healthcare is harder to come by. It's more expensive, you know. Expensive, yeah. Everybody's most people are loaded down with school loans, whether grad degree or undergraduate degree, things like this. Um, cost of living in the major metropolitan areas is like out of control. Like, so just being able to you know, pay your rent is extremely hard. So it's really hard to say, you know, I'm gonna go six months without a salary or I'm just, you can't start a business like with $3,000 anymore, you know, or yeah, very difficult. Um, and I think, you know, with the, you know, your iceberg thing is, um, either when you're starting a successful business these days, either it's going to take a hell of a lot of time or a lot more money in network than you anticipate. Um, and that's the story that doesn't get told a lot behind a lot of these successful businesses is, you know, either that it, they were like a 20 year overnight of success or that there was like this <clears throat> major, they had a network or a certain access to capital that most average people don't have. Um, we see that in the food business I work in right now, you see that a lot, a lot of the highly scaled businesses that do really well are do are mostly in the news. There's some connection between, um, you know, and I'm not trying to take away anything from these entrepreneurs because obviously they succeeded and did a great job and they executed very well. But like the founder behind RX bar came from a food family, like his parents ran like a distributor and a manufacturing place like the network was built in you know there was there's it's a major advantage you know did extremely well he hit the market just right he did the marketing just right did everything just right um <clears throat> but it was an incredible success story but you know they you know there was that extra bit behind it you know that really makes a difference um you know cuts years off of the life cycle of the business um 
And so I think, you know, I did in 2008 to get back to your question, I did want to be an entrepreneur. Um, being at business school really did get me excited for being an entrepreneur. Um, and, uh, but it was just like this pull, like I really wanted to do it, but like there was no way, you know, there was no, number one, I didn't have a business idea at the time, right? And uh, minor detail. <laughs> yeah, minor detail. And that I was super passionate about and just wanted to do it. And number two, um, <clears throat> I, uh, you know, I, had this pressure on to you know provide for the family and things like this. Um, so uh, you know what happens is I, I, I took a job in Bulgaria. Um, I went to emerging markets. I, I worked at a plastics factory in Bulgaria where I took it over and tried to flip the company. Um, that was an amazing experience. I we got screwed on the and the end deal by the owners um, uh, who screwed everybody. But it was a amazing learning experience living in Bulgaria for seven months and trying to turn this platform. Mm. We actually turned the, the factory profitable again. It was a great job, but, uh, and it was, you know, I probably learned more in that seven months than I did in two years of my MBA. It was like the media grad school, the media mm. impl implementation, like real stuff. Yeah. Um, and after that, actually, after that experience, I ended up setting up my first LLC, my first company. And when we moved, we moved back to the U.S. briefly as my wife got a job. And, um, or I moved back because my wife had been living in the U.S. Um, while I was in Bulgaria. And uh, <clears throat> she, um, I got a, I just set up an innovation consulting firm kind of thing. Um, it was like 2009, 2010, and the, the economy was still really bad. Um, in D.C., the only economy was security stuff. And I had lost my top secret clearance because I had been out of the military for just long enough. And I, uh, you know, just lived in Bulgaria. So, you know, that's not very helpful um, from, you know, for contractors. Uh, and I really didn't want to do that stuff anyway. And so I, I started working in, like, um, emerging markets and innovation. And uh, I won some grants. Um, and we ended up getting the opportunity to move to Doha, Qatar. So we moved to Doha, Qatar. Um, I set up a business there. My wife um, was, was still working for the same company over there. Uh, she was working for a think tank called Rand. And uh, we uh, worked there for uh, three years. My daughter was born there. Um, we had a great time, met a lot of great friends. Um, I actually did some startups over there, which so I got some of that entrepreneurial stuff out, though nothing really worked. Uh, very difficult environment. Uh, but it was a lot of fun, um, and we were also glad to leave. Uh, and you really appreciate the U.S. so much more. And I think really when you when you work when you work overseas, um, especially when people complain about regulation in the U.S., and you're just like you, have, you, have no idea. Like, you, you, you don't know how lucky we are to have the regulation that we have. Like, like we saw a mall burn down and like a nursery with 18 kids in it died because of oh, wow. bad fire regulations and things like that. Yeah. Like wow. don't complain about regulations cause that's the other side of it. It was yeah. like, um, <clears throat> but we, uh, uh, but I got to travel a lot there too. I was working in Egypt. I worked in uh, Ghana. I worked in uh, Lebanon and, and Jordan, and, uh, China. I was in wow. Beijing a bunch of times. So, um, got to do business in all these places and that was amazing and set up businesses here and there and help raise funds uh, and yeah you really start to see like the real structural problems um i think it kind of went full circle for me but thinking like we saw um when i was getting out of the military uh i was like so excited about getting into business and thinking you know business was really the more the solution innovation entrepreneurship this is what will help with development you know that when i was seeing with the military was failing you know and 
in places and like, you know, the governments can't force this change, you know, maybe innovation and entrepreneurship is a solution. And then you try to do entrepreneurship and innovation in like emerging markets and you're like, actually, you kind of need a government to work to have good entrepreneurship. It's brilliant. Mm -hmm. Without good institutions, without, you know, like good courts of law and reliable, you know, um, justice departments and like things like this is like ports that work and things like this. Uh, it's really hard to make any type of business work. Um, without any if you can't even have a contract with people you know that you can trust like if business is based on trust and that doesn't work without government i think we miss that but the hidden hand of the market in the u.s is actually based on like a strong federal government um and it, so people take that for granted a lot here and i think we need to, you know we have it so good here we we actually like almost crap on it um and i think we need to appreciate it more and invest in it more um but yeah, so then we moved back to the U.S. in 2013. Um, I got a job in uh, <clears throat> a charity hired me as their director of innovation to help them launch products um, from emerging markets that they wanted to be as like social impact products. And so the first thing we did was coffee. And we did this coffee from uh, Eastern Uganda. Um, so it was great. I got to go to Uganda a couple of times, work directly with the, co the cooperative, purchase the coffee, work with direct trade and uh develop and launch this coffee and i of course because like this is what happens to me i fall in love with these projects and i just like put my head down blinders on and i just want to you know work on it and i was like launching the coffee we got it out we got made the first like 20 after the first year developing this like we launched the coffee made like twenty thousand dollars in the first month of sales and the charity runs out of money and they fire me <laughs> so I was, um, after like all these getting beaten up so many times between, you know, trying to start businesses in the Middle East, uh, the Bulgaria thing, you know, just going through the recession, I was just like, I had had it at that point. And I was like, that's it. I'm doing, now I'm like full in doing this. I'm starting a business, going to do my own thing. Um, and that's when True Made Foods was born. And so um, a guy I knew had round kind of serendipitously like, around the same time that I was getting fired for the charity, like recontacted me. I met him at a conference. He was an ex army guy. Um, he had pretended to be in the food industry and uh, told me about this idea of putting vegetables in things. Uh, and the idea of putting a veggie in a ketchup was just like brilliant. Cause I thought, you know, pasta sauce, we use carrots, not sugar. Um, I, it immediately was like fireworks for me because I was like, I, oh, as a, by that time, I just had my fourth child, and um, you know, ketchup was a battle in my household. Like it was like a war that I was losing, um, big time. Because uh, you know, I'm very healthy eater. Always been very anti-sugar, and I always thought ketchup was like red sugar. Like it was red corn syrup, basically. It, it has more sugar than ice cream, ounce per ounce. It's terrible for you. Um, four grams of sugar in a tablespoon, like a, a, a baked at home chocolate chip cookie or average chocolate chip cookie has three grams of sugar, two to three grams of sugar. Wow. So, you know, a tablespoon of ketchup has more than a chocolate chip cookie. You're, it's like, that's what you're putting on your burger or your, your kids are putting on their nuggets. And if you have small kids, you realize that, you know, ketchup is like a food group for them too. Uh, mm -hmm. No shock because it's so sweet. Um, and I think every parent has been through this battle and the struggle where you're like, you don't want your kids pouring ketchup all over their food, but you also want them to eat dinner. And so <laughs> you just give in. And, uh, you know, and my kids are putting, you know, if we, we would cook tuna steaks and they would put ketchup on it. It's just like, 
so wow. disappointed as a father, but you know, this is what happens. Um, and you, know, you quickly become disillusioned as a parent. They, they, when you're a young parent, you think your kids are going to eat so healthy and perfect and they're going to be great eaters, great eaters. And that lasts for like a year and then you, know, you give up. Um, and you're throwing Cheerios at them and chicken nuggets. Um, but the, uh, but like, so this ketchup thing was like, I thought this was a media idea. Like, I thought it was brilliant. I thought uh, this is something I need. I am the customer. And I think that's important um, when you're starting a business to really get excited about that. I had tried to start businesses or get into business before in areas where like, I thought it was a really interesting area, um, thought it was an interesting business idea and really realized after a few months, it was like, you know, I'm not the founder for this. Like and you start telling your own founder story, like, and you're like, this doesn't fit. And I was like, this one fits. Like, this is something I'm totally passionate about. Something we would use in the house constantly um, that I would love to get my family and friends using and things mm -hmm. like this. And I really think there's more people out there like me who would use this product. And so that got me excited about doing this ketchup. Um, our initial product was kind of a, a low sugar ketchup, but 50% less sugar than a regular ketchup. Um, these carrots, butternut, squash, and spinach in it to naturally sweeten it. Um, I thought, you know, I was worried about trying to go full no sugar for the flavor because I knew it had to taste good. Um, there was a couple other, um, you know, kind of better for you products out been out there for a while on um, this time and they tasted awful. Um, you know, it's not, as a parent, like you, you, they, they positioned themselves as kind of this hipster ketchup, which was, I guess, cool at the time, but in like 2014, 2015, 2016 now. And uh, which, you know, I get um, coming from where they were coming from, but like as a parent, it was just, it's completely unhelpful, right? You know, you, if the kids don't eat it, it, there's no point in buying it. So um, my, my kids hated it. And so it was like, I need to have a product that the kids eat. And so one of the core tenets of the business of True Made Foods when we started it, um, is that you know the, the kids have to like this and anything that we launch, any product we launch, we, we don't want to be pushing it uphill. It's hard enough to start a food business. Um, it's hard enough to start any business. Like if you, you at this point, I think I'd been like through enough ringers and done enough stupid projects and ideas and you know failed enough that I was like, I know how hard this is. I do not want to go after something, do something that one, that I'm not 100% totally passionate about, and two, um, that I feel like I is difficult in any way. Like if it doesn't taste good, or you know, it takes an acquired taste, or if it isn't much healthier than everything else out there, you know, if it doesn't hit those categories where you, you know, if it's just a me too product, um, it just may become so much harder um, to do, and I you know, I knew what I was getting myself in for the amount of work and you know, pain I was going to go through. And so I did not want to, to do that with a, with a subpar product. And, um, so, you know, the, the taste flavor profile was key for us from, you know, early for me early on to get this right. Um, <clears throat> so that's kind of became the tenant was like, yeah, this is the core of our business right here is we're not going to launch a product if it doesn't taste the best, if it isn't the healthiest and have the best ingredient deck on the shelf, hands down. Um, and because this is too hard, you know, and not going to make it harder. So. so what comes next? Does it, do you form a team at this point or do you start working on the, the recipes? Um, I actually, I had a, I had a co-founder 
who came in who said he had the recipes and I believed him at first and it turned <laughs> out he, he didn't. His recipes were awful, like awful. And um, so like a month and a half going into starting the business, like I realized like we had to start from scratch, like with the recipes and the ingredients and stuff like that. And so we did and we just, we got lucky that like the first go round worked, like kind of just pushed. And uh, so we got super lucky that this kind of first go round worked and we got to this 50% less sugar ketchup. Um, and then uh, once we got there, uh, I, I got us into a, uh, actually we had already just joined a, uh, an accelerator called Foodex um, in New York City. And my dad lived in New York City at the time. And so I had a place to stay, which was huge. Um, so I would spend like three or four days up a week, uh, a week up in New York City. My wife hated this, um, obviously. And, uh, but it forced me to work like round the clock on the product, on uh, launching the business. Um, and the nice thing about getting into the accelerator was, again, because you have your family and you're under this pressure to kind of like, make money or do something with this, like the accelerator gave, gives you some money up front. So it takes a little bit of the relief off. It gives you some validation that you actually have something here. And two, um, you know, somebody's believing in you and it gives you a network as well, which is so much more important. And that was something I really didn't have with uh, this the beginning of a network to really help launch a business in the US. I've been living overseas for so long and you know, been in the military before that. Um, so the, you know, the network was critical. Um, and it also then forces you to work like nonstop on the business. Whereas if we, if I didn't have the accelerator, there probably would always been this nagging thing in the back of my mind, you know, should I be look? I'd probably be, you know, a couple hours a day, then maybe looking for a real job. And if a real job did come along, maybe I would have taken mm -hmm. it. Um, but because I'd made this commitment to the accelerator and set up the business, you know, had an, an initial investor with the accelerator investing in us, um, you know, it forced me to go full in right away. Um, now I would not recommend doing what I did. I think we, I went in a little bit too early. Like we went full in, like I would have, I would have liked to have spent six months a year developing a product and getting it right. And, you know, <clears throat> really testing the market more and things like that. Um, but, um, you know, I don't think I, I also, if I didn't do it the way I did it, I might not have started the business. So, um, I think that was kind of the, the difference in the change. And we struggled for the first two years. It was a mess, um, you know, because of that. And uh, it was a total mess for the first two years. Um, I had to kick the co-founder out. He was not doing anything, just like he didn't bring the recipes to the table. He didn't bring anything else to the table. Um, unfortunately, you know, it just, these things don't work um, and sometimes. And uh, um, he was really hurting the business. And so, you know, that was painful. That probably set us back months, if not more, maybe a year, you know. Uh, Again, not having the right people to start with is difficult. Um, so you know, being really careful with who you start with your business with is really tough. Uh, are you considering giving up at this point? Or are you thinking this is just another telling experience? I am, I have a real problem where I'm too, I'm too stupid to give up a lot of times. <laughs> <laughs> and I probably should have, like in 2016, I I probably should have kicked, when I had to kick the co-founder out and everything, like I, I probably should have given up then or at least restarted or did something. And I didn't, and I kept driving through. And again, part of this is like, cause I had this, I had investors at this point. Mm -hmm. We brought on these investors a little bit too early, not a lot, but like a couple of angels. And I just felt way too committed. You know, and I like, 
you know, could not bear losing anybody's money. And um, I was, uh, and I just really, I also just like, after since 2008 and like having to go through looking for a job during the financial crisis where, you know, like every door was shut in my face, I just really did not want to look for a job again either. So <laughs> I had this like, you know, this driving thing of like not wanting to have to look for a job ever again. And, um, so yeah, it was just, everything kind of fell in place for me to just push through. And luckily enough, enough of these angels kind of believed in me enough to keep kind of just barely keep us going. Um, but got us going and like 2015, 2016, 2016, uh, 2016, we had like a kind of a huge year, like we did 400,000 in our first year. And that was amazing. Um, in a way that was bad, because it kind of set expectations, like I thought we were going to be, you know, off hockey stick growth. <laughs> and then like 2017 was like $350,000 in sales. And it was like, product wasn't working on a shelf, the packaging was really bad, terrible packaging, uh, terrible label, label designs just did not communicate. Um, went into too many stores that, you know, we shouldn't have gone into too fast, over relied on a certain amount of customers. So um, really took like a 2017, I had to like really kind of revamp things, rethink, focus on launching, um, and focused on launching a plastic squeeze bottle for the ketchup, um, finally hired designers. Uh, and I also uh, uh, worked on developing, we worked on developing the no sugar ketchup at that point. Um, and and I, I found um, Ed Mitchell, who is our partner now in barbecue sauces, um, legendary pit master Ed Mitchell and his son Ryan. Like we worked out something where we, we started a partnership to where they would you know be the face of the barbecue sauces and kind of be the co-founders of the barbecue sauce chain line um, and be involved in the rest of the business as well. But specifically, you know, drive on the barbecue piece. Um, because I didn't want to, uh, I wanted to do barbecue sauces, but I, I wanted to do it right, you know, um, <clears throat> and uh, and they were the just the perfect perfect fit in every single way. Um, and so we 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 came together. And so 2017, I kind of worked on all those things to try to get things going. And then like 2018, we finally had we had like an eight hundred thousand dollar year. Um, and then 2019, we broke a million dollars for the first time. And then this year we we've already passed uh, we're past 1.6 million for the year and we're on track. We're already at over two million in trailing 12 months, so which is a huge milestone. Uh, you know, especially for condiments. Condiments are really difficult to build early on because uh, uh, this is one thing I didn't know realize getting into this. But if you think about it, when you're trying to hit a million dollars in sales, like that's a lot of bottles of ketchup. Like because people don't buy ketchup every day. Like, um, and you're you know the average household only buys ketchup three times a year, right? And it mm -hmm. sits in your fridge. Um, the easier, quote unquote easier, like uh, uh, categories to launch in are, you know, chips or ready to drink beverage, coffee, things like that, where people are consuming it on a regular basis or like beef jerky and snacks, you know, where people grab it and go. Um, uh, now those categories are much more saturated with competition because they're easier to launch in. It's easier to get to $5 million in sales today because that. Um, it's much harder in a catch-up, which means I have a lot less startup competition, right? Um, but it's a harder, it's harder to get to that first two million, first five million in sales. Like you need more stores, you need more customers, bigger customer base. You really have to start figuring out all the math behind that. You know, you think about like how many times a year somebody's buying and how many customers you need to be able to hit that 
sale point, you know, you know, and so we probably need, you know, five to 10 times the amount of customers that like beef jerky brand does to hit the same sales, you know, um, so then you start putting in marketing dollar cost of that. Go ahead, Lauren. Here, it's curious. your turn. <laughs> I'm curious. Oh, I've just been engrossed in listening. So I, I work with a lot, actually, the past couple of years, I work with a lot of startup founders and CEOs and, and some groups too. And I've, what you're describing of kind of that roller coaster, right, is fairly common to that startup entrepreneur where it's like, I'm high, I'm good, everything's awesome, the world is crashing down <laughs> around me. <laughs> um, but I've also equated it, I'm curious your thought on this, I've also equated it a bit to a sport analogy of like that first year almost sounded to me like sure there's a lot of pressure and all that but it's to me at least the, the people that I've talked to thus far it's kind of like that team that's trying to win the national championship for the first time like there's so much pressure and it's such a big goal but there's kind of like this tinge of excitement because there's so much you have to gain and then when you get there and you win that then there's like this change because now you're trying either not to lose that status or to repeat and so there's this kind of different vibe felt to the pressure or the stress i'm curious your thoughts on that or your experience of it yeah it's um absolutely yeah, i think that's a great analogy in a lot of ways i mean you when you're first starting like everything is difficult, but like, you can also like, everything is also amazingly new. Like every little win is incredible. Right. And, um, you know, you'll get mentioned <clears throat> like when we first kind of, we launched in like 2015, like super early. And it was like, we, at the fancy food show, we launched in the fancy food show. And there was a couple of articles that mentioned us, you know, as a new product coming out and in 2015, there's still like so much new buzz around new food. Cause like 2010 through 2015, it kind of like this romance period for new food items where you could launch anything with a clean label, you know, or like call it organic, a, a regular version that it would, you know, everybody would get excited about. And um, the, uh, so 2015, you know, you would get, you would get these news mentions. You're like, it's amazing. We made it. This is incredible. It's going to just go explode. And then, you know, now looking back, I'm like, I wish we didn't even get mentioned in those things now because it, it gives you nothing like really at the end of the day. I mean, there's some bragging points you could start, you know, we would put those that, news mentions and like sales and investment decks but it was like um you, know, you don't get any extra sales from that because you nobody can find your products like mm -hmm. you know we were we weren't in stores anywhere and our e-commerce was there but it kind of sucked and our products aren't great for e-commerce anyhow they're heavy and they you know they cost a lot to ship um, um at the time you couldn't even put we were all glass bottle at the time we launched in all only glass bottles and you, at the time you couldn't even be on amazon fba uh, fulfillment by Amazon in Amazon Warehouse if you're a glass bottle in 2015. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until like 2017 or 2018 when they started letting glass bottles in there. Mm -hmm. um, and even now they charge extra for handling on glass bottles. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, so it was, uh, you know, you think about it, yeah, you get so excited by these little things and they're like, they're really now looking back with a little bit of uh, uh, kind of maturity on it, I guess, is like you'd say, so inconsequential like so unimportant uh, and really I should have been working just on this and pre preparing. But I mean, also psychologically, you need that kind of keep going. But, uh, yeah, yeah, that's but that second year, there really is that kind of like sophomore slump. Um, I always yeah. felt like that too. I mean, it's interesting. I played rugby in college and okay. um, like I, uh, we were, we had a really good rugby team at Vanderbilt when I was there. Um, and uh, my freshman year, I was a starter 
and it was like amazing, right? And it was like it was such a proud thing. And then like my sophomore year, just kind of slumped down because it's like there was nowhere to go, right? You I've were worked just with like a this, lot of you, yep. <laughs> yeah, you were, you were like a star as a freshman, right? Because it was amazing that you were starting as a freshman yeah. and then like sophomore year, it's like, eh, whatever. You know, it's like, where do you go from there? Um, <clears throat> and so, I mean, it kind of happened to me in high school too, it's like track and stuff. And um, so the, uh, yeah, so I think that does happen a lot. And like, you do go into the slum and it's because it's also so easy to build re revenue in your first year, right? Mm -hmm. And then it's much harder to maintain it. Uh, I think software companies have this problem too, especially with software as a surface when, the, when the, all of a sudden they realize their churn is higher than their engagement rate. And that mm -hmm. doesn't hit for until like six or 12 months in, right? Uh, and it's the same thing with um, food where if you're going mainly grocery like or you know you're hitting you know, you're opening up all these new stores and then all of a sudden you know the new the biggest po is the initial po the purchase or initial purchase order is huge and then like oh, the next po doesn't come for a couple months and then it's really small and if you're lucky it keeps growing and then things like that so you know um <clears throat> and a lot of times it's not as easy to keep building the, that ACV, the distribution, keep building those sales. Um, so uh, there's a, a really strong, I think there's, um, especially in food, I think, you know, I always tell uh, new startups, like just worry about like growing your sales. And every, people told me this at the time, but I think the problem is like, you can't keep raising money if you're not hitting certain major milestones. Um, and that's because there's not a lot of angel capital and not a lot of give in food. Like there's not excessive valuations. Valuations are really, uh, are very, uh, very low, um, even for startups. And you have to, uh, you, so if you're not getting, get to that million dollars, like the big come, money doesn't come in. And, um, or that couple million dollars, you're just like bringing in like $25,000 checks at a time kind of thing from angels and you're struggling to get by um, and, and build a real brand and create a real strategy because, you know, and, but really you should be just focusing on trying to not burn cash and focus on just, you know, getting a few key sales and really building that customer base in like that channel or that market, that regional market. Um, and, you know, I, I was told to do this too early on and I didn't listen because I just wanted to get, I, well, part of the thing, this goes back to having kids, right? Like I was just like, I need to have a salary. There's only so long I can go without a salary, mm -hmm. you know? So I need to get this company to a point where I can either raise enough money, you know, to, to justify paying myself a salary. And because of that, like I just went all out. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and also there's no investors out there. There's very few investors out there like who will go, okay, let's grow slowly and reasonably and do this right. And I don't worry, I'll keep backing you the whole way. Like they, they never say that. Like the guy who writes you the $5,000 checks wants, wants you to be at $5 million in five weeks. Like they all like expect you to be, to take their, you know, their small dollar check and turning it into to hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of the problem through this early stage, this area, this infancy company uh, part is a real problem where like the expectations are just totally out of whack um a lot of the time and uh you know if i think as an as an industry or an, as a an ecosystem like we just need to get those um uh expectations in, in in check and get it right and uh you know i look at you look at some of the companies who did it really well and they they built up um 
they uh, usually didn't have to raise money early on. They had family money or like some other source of income coming in. You know, they launched, they have a restaurant, they launched a food product outside of it. So they were able, you know, the restaurant could sustain um, them. And that helps, um, or a storefront, and that helps because then you can grow a lot smarter and, and do it right. Um, and I think, you know, that was some, something I didn't have. And I think there's, uh, but I think, you know, you shouldn't have to either have like a trust fund or, a rich uncle or have a restaurant to be able to do it right. Like somebody should be able to, um, investors, there needs to be investors that, that help people grow smartly. And if you, if you, if you're an investor and you're an angel investor, you write somebody a $25,000 check, don't expect them to be at $5 million next year. Like, you know, you know, expect them to grow their sales and grow their metrics and do it right and help them find extra money to keep it going that way without getting out of control. That's what um, I was going to say. I think there's a difference too, right, between doing that and being the one-hit wonder versus creating a sustainable and scalable business model, right? right. Which a lot of, I, I think, startups experience that challenge. Yeah, and if you're growing at, you know, 100% a year, that's still great. I mean, yeah, if you're going from 50,000 to 100,000 to 200,000, I mean, it's going to get to that. It's still exponential growth, you know. Um, people just, but people are so impatient and want to see it at $10 million, you know, within a year. And like, um, I mean, I got some good advice, but I also got a lot of bad advice early on about like trying to like pushing me to go faster, pushing me to go harder, go focus on this, don't do that. And that kind of, um, and that encourages you to like spend money in the wrong way to try to, you know, dump money into marketing, but that really isn't as effective, you know, you don't need. So I was, working on a documentary project, one of the consulting, and I was really, really stressed. And one of the consulting producers gave me the advice of just tell the story. And so have you had a similar experience during all of this kind of mixed advice? Whereas yeah, you had a moment yeah. where you're just like, I have to let it happen or just do what I know what to do. Yeah, it was just like, you know, focus on the stores. I mean, we're primarily a grocery channel uh, focus and it's, um, we were, getting caught up trying to build other channels or like, you know, trying to get into food service too early, trying to, um, you know, maybe wasting money on e-commerce, something like that, where it's, which are important. You have to be omni-channel these days, but like you, there's going to be one channel that really makes your money. And uh, for our category, you know, for ketchup, it really is, and barbecue sauce too, really is being in the grocery store. Like that's where, People buy it. That's where the majority of thing the stuff happens. Just do that exceptionally well, like, and just focus on that really well. And the other stuff will come, like, you know, and you'll you'll be able to have enough money and bandwidth at some point to be able to do well on Amazon too. Um, but uh, <clears throat> you know, so we once we were like dedicated to the retail channel, like we needed to do it, you know, extremely well, um, and just you know. Focus on what you can control in store and your promotions, in-store demos, you know, stuff like that. And once we started, once we really started focusing on that and focusing on our shelf presence, like we redid our labels like four times in the last two years. And uh, I think we've got really solid labels right now. And, you know, we've even tweaked them again for 2021, but just a small tweak. But it's, um, you know, I think we're, um, we got a much better designer now too. And like, uh, I think it's, uh, that's uh, just so important, like, you know, just doing that, like focusing, like the labels make, uh, 
10 times more difference than anything else you can do on your food product, right? Yeah, and there's so some just, fascinating research behind that, you know, the psychology yeah. of that and even shelf placement and all those things. Mm -hmm. So yeah, just trying to focus on doing that right and doing it well, you know, really kind of makes more difference than anything else. Uh, you know, and the other stuff will come. It's like, that's like telling a story, right? You know, focusing on the customer, making sure you get that. Uh, so, what do you view as keys to your success? Well, you know, I don't think I'm successful yet, but you know, so that's one thing. Um, definitely not. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> I think number one is definitely like kind of the grit. Um, I see so many people quit or give up or just, you know, uh, don't, don't have what it takes to make it through the hard stuff, like really. And uh, or don't have the good the stoic attitude to it too. And the second is really just kind of finally developing stoic attitude towards things, um, you know, where you, cause there's gonna be so many ups and downs and like the downs will just kill you if you don't, and especially, and the roller coaster will just kill you if you don't just kind of, you know, so with the ups, I, I don't, I. Yeah, yeah, I celebrate them somewhat, but I don't like get too out of control with the ups now. And like, you know, I don't, I don't get too out of control with the downs. And I kind of prep myself for this too. It's like, what happens? You know, we're in 1300 Walmarts right now. And I'm like, what happens if Walmart comes back and says, you know what, we're just going to carry Heinz and private label, or maybe we're just going to do private label. Maybe they just want to do that, you know, and what if they drop us, right? You know, I got to be ready for that. You know, got to be ready for that reality. I can't control it. You know, I can't control everything. You know, so um, that could happen. So you got to be ready for that and have a plan, kind of a semi-plan for that. I'm curious, as a follow-up, how do you define success then? Uh, how do I define success? Um, it's a good question. I don't know if I've ever thought about that. That's a great <laughs> question. Uh, I mean, I mean, I think it's kind of a moving target. I think that's kind of the problem is like, you know, I would have killed to be where I am right now a couple of years ago, 2017. You know, hopefully, say that again, um, you know, I don't think I'm going to be happy with where we are yet until like, you know, um, <clears throat> well, that's not true. I mean, I think, you know, I, I hope I keep going until we become the next Heinz, you know, because that would be the ultimate kind mm -hmm. of success. Um, but at the same time, if it looks like there's something that's not going to happen or if it's, you know, just taking too much of a toll on the family or anything like that, I mean, my kids come first, then, you know, I could hopefully I'll redefine my area of success or rethink of it. And so right now it's all about, you know, becoming the next Heinz, but you know, it's like, there's a point where this is just getting, it's becoming too negative for any reason, or it's getting too hard, you know, um, on my, on my kids, then I'll. Um, and we've gotten success in other ways and investors get their money back and I'll, you know, call that success. So, and, you know, make that happy. Um, yeah, my kids are number one. So that's the only thing that matters. And feel free to, to decline to answer this particular question, but I was curious the way that you worded that, did you feel more pressure then or do you feel more pressure now comparatively? I definitely felt more pressure then, I think right now we are finally in a, this year 2020 is really we got we got to a point where it's going to be a lot harder for us to fail mm -hmm. right um, awesome. we have 
We have a great strategic partner who's providing us working capital and things like that. So um, we have, you know, an investment run and we have sales data that you know, makes it easier to raise capital when we need it, if we need it. Um, the product is clearly working and it's getting out there. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just, there were a couple of years where, you know, we could have failed any given month, you know, kind of thing. And like, we almost ran out of money a number of times, um, like literally getting down to like, you know, $10,000 in the bank account and like freaking out and calling investors and like, please like give a love of God, like throw something in here. Um, and, uh, you know, or just, and there was like a year where, you know, you're just, you're trying to figure out what, what bills to pay. You know, every month you're like, how can we push this one out another month? Will, will they, are they, will this, this supplier like give us another 30 days before like totally freaking out on us? You know, who do we have to keep happy? You know, okay, we got to pay the shipping company. You know, we got to pay the freight company because otherwise we can't ship product anymore. So, you know, like who else can we not pay? You know, and um, so there was definitely like a year or two of that. And that's, you know, that's a difficult part to be in. And, uh, we're not, we're not there right now. I mean, obviously we're not like throwing money at anybody. We're being like super, uh, I, I think feel like I'm even, I feel like I'm even more uh, frugal now than I was earlier on. Except probably because there was like a level of desperation of just trying to gain sales um, early on. Um, but uh, you know, we, we can, we, if my lawyer sends me a, a bill that I wasn't expecting, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna bitch about it, but I'll I can still pay it. I won't put it off for six months and hope that he does and hope he still keeps working for me. <laughs> so, uh, answer reminds me, I had a dear family friend who was running a restaurant and they were still trying to get it off the ground and they came to turn off the electricity and he went out and asked the person if they could just let him finish cooking what was on the grill. <laughs> just, just give me a few minutes and I'll be oh. <laughs> That's about right, yeah. Yeah, you're, yeah, there, I mean, there's like, I think there's, for at least for a CPG company, like there is this uh, spiral death where you're like around $500,000 in sales. Um, 500,000 to a million, especially. And yeah, you're doing like, you know, you good month is $80,000 and a bad month is like forty dollars $30,000. And when you're in that cycle, like you really just have not, and if you're paying salaries or co contractors or anything, like you're just, you can't cover any costs like, at that point. And you're, you're definitely, um, you know, it's a volume business and there, that's like the cycle, that's a cycle of death because you're, you're scaled up almost like a big company to be able to maintain that level of sales and grow it. So you have kind of the over, a lot of the expenses with, uh, as a big company, but you don't have the revenue to cover it. Um, and that's kind of like this most important area for kind of like investors to step in things like that. Cause debt won't cover that, that area either, right? It's really difficult for debt to cover that area because you're just losing too much money. Um, and, and that's the difficult point where really. you have to break out of that cycle. Um, I think once you're hitting like 300 or 400,000 in sales, like our calculations right now, and this is, it's always a moving target because you always have to spend a little bit more on marketing too, or like increase your overheads a little bit if you're hiring. Um, but I, and that's, you know, that's the challenge, right? Scaling the revenue and the costs at different rates. But the, uh, like right now, if we were hitting 400K in sales a month, you know, we were, we're over 300 for quite a few months this, this year, but if we were hitting 400, like that's where we would be really cash flow positive and like things would be okay. Um, of course, now if we need to get there, we need to spend more money on marketing, right? And we need to hire somebody else and, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. So, um, so it's a, 
that so we're probably so we're not quite out of that the the uh, the cash flow suck yet like we're getting sure. there. That's what I, not nearly the scale you're on, but we launched our podcast in, uh, what was it, May? May. And every time, every time I think about the what we need to do to keep growing, it's like costing money. <laughs> and so <laughs> Time like, and money. Yeah. <laughs> what have you, uh, yeah. what have you yeah, learned about yourself uh, throughout your journey? Uh, I've learned, what have I learned? I've learned I'm bad, what am I, you learn what you're bad at. <laughs> more than what you're good at. Uh, I, uh, I learned I was like really, I was too trusting and like too reliant on people, uh, on too, too trusting of people and too nice, giving them too much time. I think part of that comes from being in the military where like um, as an officer or as a senior enlisted or anybody in a leadership position in the military, you're going to have bad people. You just get stuck with a certain amount of bad people, right? That's just always the case. And you're seen as a bad leader or failure. It's a failure of leadership. If you are just like, I need to get rid of this person. This, we need to kick mm -hmm. this person out. You know, that needs to be the absolute last resort. You have to go through absolutely every other form of mentorship and coaching and, you know, different types of discipline actions or whatever it is. Um, and uh, I think that has always kind of kept me from, uh, you know, and when you're doing a startup, you know, and some things aren't working out, nobody's working out, you have to like kick somebody out quick. You have to just, you have to cut ties fast. And I just didn't do that early on in the first few years. And that was a huge mistake. Um, and it cost us a lot, you know, because um, you're bringing people on or you're working with somebody and it's, they're, they're just not pulling away. They're not doing what they promised. Um, and you got to, you got to, you got to test them and you got to kick them out quick, quick. Um, and you got to work with them slowly. And, you know, and I wasn't used to that. I was thinking like, I got to make this work. I got to make this relationship work. What am I doing wrong? You know, that they are not doing their job well enough. You know, I was thinking like, do I not, am I not getting them enough information? Am I not getting, you know? And that was, uh, you know, and so that was real problematic for me. Like I was really bad. So now I almost don't trust myself sometimes and like with, with people and I'm looking, we're looking at hiring right now and I'm, I'm a little worried about that. It's got me freaked. So, um, I have so the same the, problem with uh, yeah. giving people too much time. I think that like, I want to exhaust every opportunity that I've, like, I don't want to be the reason they're having problems and sometimes <laughs> I take it too far. So, yeah. And then, you know, sometimes now like with my sales team right now, sometimes they're like, Oh, you're way, I don't know. They're like, they're really hard on me. And like, I have this outsourced sales team. And like, they always, like, but the leaders of it are telling me that some of the people are complaining that I'm too hard on them now and things like that. I'm like, guys, guys, it's like, <laughs> like, but you know, sales is like, it's like you have one metric. Like, there's one metric to be, <laughs> I don't care how nice you are right now. <laughs> so, and I had to like make that switch and make that change and um, really drive on the kind of, kind of thing. So what um, are, what are some things that you have done or do to help um, manage the stress of all this? Uh, to be honest, I think like kind of my, my kids help a lot um, in a way, cause it's like, it forces me to totally dissociate with companies. Sometimes like I have to be like totally kids. I don't, I, clearly I have no hobbies like whatsoever right you know there's no time for anything like that um, but I don't even time to read right and so like we um, you know throwing myself into my kids lives and focusing on them 
and being stuff like that it forces your brain i think it helps a lot because it forces my brain to totally disengage and focus on something else i mean sometimes it like quadruples the stress you know and sometimes like you know when um when my kids aren't when your kids aren't going to bed at night and you know you've got like three more hours of work to do and like they're like just not going to sleep and you're like <laughs> and you're like i'm gonna be up till two in the morning because you know, i'm gonna be up to you know five the next morning like uh so um yeah so sometimes it makes things worse but most of the time i think i've found in the long run it 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 helps because i can you know i just have this immediate release where like i can um uh, you know you know, forget about things and stuff like that. And just focus on them and, you know, turn my brain off. From that. Uh, Are you able to do that? Turn your brain off? Yeah, no, I, I, I've gotten better at that as I get older, actually. I think it's because, probably because, I'm, you know, as you get older, you're too tired. I'm not smart, so <laughs> I, I can't. I can see easier to turn off. Uh, I'm in that cycle where I wake up at 2.30 now and like if I wake up even momentarily, all the things that I had on my to-do list somehow find their way into my consciousness. So <laughs> I'm like, why is this happening every, um, yeah, every morning now? Yeah, no, I mean it's tough. Um, I found things like uh, to help me get to bed. Like I have to. Number one, like I like driving through all the emails is key, and then two is um, just writing down a quick to-do list. You know, I'm not great with project management tools or anything like that. I don't use anything kind of complicated, but just like having a fast to-do list of like, these are the most important things in my mind that I, you know, I got to do so that I don't have to think about them at night. Like, cause I know I'll wake up in the morning and I can forget everything and I can read that and I'll be fine. I'll know what to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I know what I need to get done first thing in the morning. And so I think that that's been a, a good trick when I have too much going on. I want to circle back. You mentioned the nature versus nurture issue earlier. We actually met in grad school studying expert performance and expertise. In Florida, we were there with you, not too far away. <laughs> <laughs> and so we asked all of our guests. Uh, I don't think I, I just explained it for the listener. Obviously, you know, understand what it's about. But essentially, uh, one extreme view is we're born with everything that we need. We have to cultivate nothing. The other extreme view is we're born with... Um, nothing we have to cultivate all of it and there's everything in between uh where would you fall on that continuum or spectrum i i think um much more nurture than nature like on the spectrum but obviously there are some you know nature pieces to it like you know um <clears throat> like i think it's pretty amazing i think you know our brains are plastic like i think from an intelligence standpoint and skill standpoint like Nobody should ever say that they're bad at math. Like there is like no such thing or you're some type of learner. Like that apparently doesn't exist either. Like I think you, know, you can learn almost anything. Like anybody says, oh, I'm much more of a visual learner. I'm like, everybody is. That's just, it's just much easier to watch a video than it is to read something. That's just like, un, you know. Um, but you know, yeah, some people are more focused. I mean, seeing it with my kids, you see the differences like in the things, but then you also realize, you know, like my oldest kid is super focused, um, you know, much more can do much more deep work, things like this. Um, you know, some people have much more energy, and ADHD. Some of that might be environment. Some of it might be diet. You know, some of it might be you know, affected by it. So we, I don't think we really know totally until you really change all the, the variables. And you know, you can control things. Like there's so many successful people who have overcome, you know, certain types of, you know, whether 
or call it a disability, but like setbacks, like having ADHD or something like that, and they just figure out ways to manage it uh, or, you know, play to their strengths. Um, you know, I mean, you always think about it from a professional athlete standpoint too, like if you want to make it into the NFL, like there's, you know, there's a certain amount of limitation, you know, if you are five foot four and, you know, 140 pounds, and it's, it's going to be extremely, extremely hard, but there's guys who play in the NFL who are, 510 and you know 190 pounds you know so it is there are you know physical possibilities uh, then you also say uh i mean and I, I think some of those physical limitations really don't come in until much later if you look at athleticism like uh you know uh um, you know usain bolt and uh who's the swimmer who's the, michael phelps michael phelps like mm -hmm. those two guys are perfect examples like they have the perfect bodies for their sports right michael phelps short legs long torso better for swimming same boat long legs short torso which is best for speed and um but you know they still would not be gold medal winners if they didn't put the work in at the same time and the, the mental you know capability all that stuff too so there's I, so much different you know things that you're doing so you know at I try to tell my kids is like at their level for sports or academics, like there, there is no physical or nature or limitation to where they are. You know, they might have run up against the limitation for something they want to do as they go to, you know, if you're going to the Olympics, trying to win a gold medal, but that's, or, you know, playing in professional leagues, but that's, that's tiny, total different situation. Um, and there's also like you're, you're behind on something like if you, you want to go be a physicist, you know, but, you know, you didn't take physics, <laughs> like you're, you're going to spend like, you got to learn whatever everybody else needs to, needs to learn in like 10 years. You know, it's like, uh, so, um, you know, it's not that you can't do that. It's just that you're behind. You have to spend more time than everybody else uh, at that same level. I've been told I'm the perfect physical specimen to become a clown. So. <laughs> 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 sure. Uh, I'm, I'm joking. Yeah, of course. It wouldn't be that you can, fit, you can fit a lot of you in a car. Or <laughs> yeah, I'll use that. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Um, um, so, is there anything that we haven't asked or talk about that you think is important to share with the listener? I, I'm impressed that you want to talk to me and that you want to listen to me babble on here. So, like, uh, I'm, I could talk about all kinds of stuff all the time. Doesn't mean I'm the right thing for me to say but you know um may not be correct i may not be right um but uh yeah i mean i think when you are doing all this different stuff you are trying to think about these things because i'm always trying to think about like what am i doing wrong how come i'm not you know doing better what do i need to do to improve myself um that kind of thing and i think that's i think if you take that attitude um and i think it's a big problem with our society today like it's like we all are uh we all think we're way too smart you know, as far as we are, we, we rest on our laurels way too much. Um, you know, you, there was a point, I think that was in this part of like coming out of the recession and being slapped in the face and, and really humbled. Made me think, okay, I need to be the, um, the smartest I am is like right now at this moment, because I was an idiot yesterday because I didn't know X, Y, Z, and I made myself smarter. I worked on something else. I learned something new. I experienced something new. Like you, I think you have to do that. And yeah, it just shocks me some of the, I think Facebook arguments are like the key for this is like everybody thinks they're an expert on like things that they have no idea about, like, or they, you know, 
full-on strong opinions about things that they have no exposure to whatsoever and like you know like why like you should be asking questions not stating answers and i think that's it everybody needs to start taking that that point of view much more um yeah you you, you don't know you're you're we're all idiots like you really just don't know <laughs> <laughs> I will go on the record stating that I prefer the time when I didn't know everyone that I've ever met's opinion on everything. <laughs> <laughs> or what they were doing every second of the day. <laughs> yeah. It's the opinions. I, mean, like, I heard some comedians say this. I mean, remember the time before Facebook when it took like five or 10 years to learn that somebody you knew was crazy? Like, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. uh, and our final question is uh, what's the biggest takeaway? your story um i think biggest thing we don't don't assume anything can happen and just kind of you know um and if you you create and don't assume things are going to be easy either like really you need to if you go everything over with like kind of a clear eyes of like how hard something is going to be like starting a business or doing something new um yeah, you're always going to have a little bit of optimism there and think it's going to, you know, otherwise you would never start these things. But if you have like a clear kind of, I guess I've never run a marathon. I'm definitely not a distance runner, but like, like imagine, you know, people running a marathon don't start thinking that, you know, this is going to be a cakewalk. Like, you know, oh, no problem. Like, you know, know what you're getting. Go into it with clear eyes, like know what you're getting into and um, be ready for it, you know, and I think that's going to, you know, help you a lot more psychologically and help you get through this uh, and help you make the right decisions like through it too, you know. Uh, I couldn't help but uh, smile. What, what marker was Stephanie Quell on when she realized it wasn't 19, the ending? Smile 19. She said. <laughs> so we had a, another guest who ran her first marathon and she got the, the mileage mixed up and she thought it was ending sooner than it's uh, like she didn't realize how, it was 20, what is it, 27 miles? uh 26.2 and she thought it was yeah. shorter than that so and she didn't discover this one until she was on the actual um, course to run yeah. well uh abe it's been a pleasure i appreciate you taking the time to talk to us your uh, story is fascinating and i love your product and i hope everybody will check it out same i just hope some people can learn from my mistakes stuff like that too so be good and yes, buy True Made Foods. Everybody buy True Made Foods. <laughs> yeah. so. Path Distilled is hosted by Kevin Harris and Lauren Tashman, created and produced by Kevin Harris. The content is copyrighted by the Path Distilled, all right reserved. <laughs>